Hello and welcome back to Kyle's Internal Monologue. In this episode, we're going to be discussing Baptism of Fire, Chapter 7, the final chapter of Baptism of Fire. Um, and it's a big one. Uh, we got a lot of things going on. Not only big character moments, big plot moments, but also some setup for stuff that, um, almost in like a Babylon Squared style, um, when I talked about Babylon 5, where it's going to be hard to navigate certain things without spoilers, so I'm going to have to figure out, you know, how to how to divide it up here, because like, it, there's a clear setup, especially at the beginning of the chapter, that won't pay off until Lady of the Lake. Um, and so I'm having to, you know, navigate that. So this is primarily the cap on Geralt's journey throughout this book. Uh, as I said, when I started Baptism of Fire, I called this book the Geralt book because Geralt changes, he grows, he becomes a more mature person, slowly coming out of that shell that he's hidden behind since the very first short story, growing respect and admiration for his friends in a way that he hasn't had before, and really finally understanding where his loyalties lie between neutrality and, you know, sides or his family, etc. Um, and that, that's really demonstrated by the end of this chapter when he does make a choice, and that choice is very impactful for that reason. He's he's not done growing. There's going to be some stuff he's going to have to go through still. We are as close to Geralt that I think of when I think of Geralt in at the end of this book um, as we're ever going to be for a while because he's going to have some problems because, you know, he has, you know, as me and Jess have talked about, he's got, you know, not so great mental health and he's going to be struggling with that for a little bit especially as things get worse and worse for him and Hansa. The framing device of this chapter is a storyteller in a unspecified time, sometime in the future, sitting down with a group of children and talking to them uh, about this uh, grand story. And he embellishes, and, and basically the kids each want to know what happened to Yennefer, what happened to Ciri, what happened to Geralt. And it's almost metatextual in the uh in the joke of the storyteller says yes yes the stuff will go ha and will happen and they'll have to process it but we'll get there in time it, it's almost like Sapkowski telling you just hang back you know we, there's a lot more coming we we need to you know we're following three characters through some really tumultuous times and we can only do one at a time because they're all split up right now um and so just hang in there you'll get your answers one of the kids Nimue um she uh she wants to know specifically about Yen uh, and the storyteller says that oh yeah well she ended up in Skellige and she is on uh, a one woman war path to find Siri and take out Volga Forts because she is fucking angry basically meanwhile another kid wants to know about Siri and the rats and what happened and the storyteller says you know Siri has been consumed by all that is vile and hatred that exists in all of us you know uh, there is nothing but darkness right now in her can she escape that? And for and she doesn't know that. She has become the Grim Reaper for others, but now another Grim Reaper hunts her. We'll get to those later. You know, all, everything he says, all true. Yes. Next book. 
uh, Geralt, you know, he explains the journey of Geralt uh, in this final bit. Um, and the way it's done, I don't know if it's like a translation error or what it's... Like, it feels like simultaneously the storyteller sitting around the fire and occasionally giving Pacific snippets through a particular character's POV. At other times, it feels like excerpts from Dandelion's book, uh, The Fifty Years of Poetry or Half a Century of Poetry. Um, and at other times, it doesn't feel that way. And it feels like almost like an interview where, like, Geralt especially will have, like, this weird introspective thing where he talks in the past tense, like, I was really stupid that day, and it's just like, I'm not sure if it's a translation error or what, I get what Sapkowski's going for, and I really like the idea of it. I don't know what it's like in the original Polish, I'm sure it, the, the, the delineation works much better in the original Polish, but in English it comes across as very weird because there's we we are we're given this framing device of a storyteller telling a bunch of children and then it's almost like an interview documentary style where Geralt is, you know, talking about his experiences and what, you know, what was going through his head and how much of an idiot he was being and stuff in the past tense as of these years later. And so it's just kind of really weird. Um, and I'm wondering what the, the exact reasoning for that was. I I have a feeling it's a translation error, because there's quite a few translation errors. Matter of fact, when we get to Tower Swallows, that has one of the most overt, worse, uh, you know, translation errors in the entire series. Um, and it, it takes a lot of people by, uh, by surprise, unless you're geared for it. So, if you are uh, able to read it in the original Polish, then let me know about Chapter 7 of Brothers and Fire and how Geralt's introspective, you know, talking in the past tense interview style things are handled in that because it just comes off as really weird in the English version. I, I do like how one of the kids was like, let them have a happy ending. Um, and, uh, it, you know, obviously Something in Something Begins was written before these books came out, but I am covering it after Lady of the Lake because I think it slots in much better there for reasons I'll get to then. That is the overt happy ending everybody's cool and dandy short story it was done as a you know it's a fluff piece it was done for one of Sarkowski's friends you know as a wedding present so of course it's happy it's fun it's delightful but the the world that uh the witcher's in outside of that one short story very rarely has happy endings. The Geralt and Hansa section that the storyteller says can kind of be split up into three sections. You got the, the, the aftermath of the Regis stuff, him being outed as a vampire, dealing with that, slash molded with uh, meeting Zoltan again and all that stuff, and then the Milva stuff, and then the battle. It's been hinted at multiple times, but now it's really come to the forefront that the vampirism in this world is is an allegory for alcoholism in a way in which vampires don't need to feed on blood. It is not their life force or anything. It is just a drink that they enjoy, and some of them enjoy it a little bit too much. And we find out that Regis, you know, he was a teetotaler 
for a long, long, long time. And then, you know, everybody, all his friends called him a party pooper. And, you know, just he was ruining the vibe. So he finally gave in the peer pressure. Gee, this sounds familiar. And he started drinking. And he found he was always very nervous around and very shy around vampire girls. But when he had a drink of blood, he was much more confident. Uh, he got along well with uh, vampire girls. And so everything was kind of going his way for a bit. And as a result, you know, he became more and more dependent on it. Um, he ended up getting in this relationship that didn't work out, set up on a depressive spiral, and so he would go on multi-day binges, basically, and it was not healthy, his friends were noticing, it became the point that he didn't even need the party, or he didn't even need people there, he would just drink by himself, because he enjoyed it. And it's very clear alcoholism, you know, of how, or even any addiction, and how one can't notice their addiction until someone points it out, and even then they'll refuse to admit it, and it takes work and a lot of thinking and introspection, and um, in, in some cases medicine, to really help one get over that. Um, and so with... Regis, because he's a vampire and this is a fantasy thing, the his rehabilitation moment, uh, his moment of realization, is is inherently uh, ridiculous but fun, in in the fact that he ended up uh, getting two notices of vampire. This village attacked him, you know, staked him, cut off his head, and stuffed him full of garlic. And so he spent the next almost, you know, several years, almost 150 years, you know, regenerating, getting getting, getting back to where he is. And in that time, since it took him so long to regenerate, though he was a blink of eye to him because he lives for so long, he realized this really wasn't worth it. And he decides to give up his vice of drinking blood um, and to, uh, you know, try for something better, something new. And as we see, you know, while he does not drink blood, that there was hints that, you know, there was, uh, you know, in his line of dialogues, especially when he was healing Dandelion, that he could smell the blood, and, you know, he's got the attic mindset, but he's trying to be better. It's much like how an alcoholic can be around people who drink, but actively, willfully chooses not to drink. Um, it requires a lot of fortitude and willpower, but it can happen. And so that that's a nice take on vampires, and I love how they just make fun of throughout the throughout this entire book. You know, even before Regis was revealed to be a vampire, is if if you knew they were just actively making fun of like all the various vampire tropes. But I love how he the the, the main trope being taken out of the piss out of here is a the drinking blood as sustenance thing. Um, and it being related to sexuality, Regis even points this out that if you ever notice, like, all the myths and legends of, like, vital creatures all come from, like, this really weird human obsession with sexuality, you know, um, and, and, and like, uh, the purity of virgins and, uh, n n you know, uh, temptation and stuff like that. And isn't that a bit weird? Because society teaches you that 
um, that basically sex is only for procreation. That's its only purpose. Of course, it's not. It can be used for pleasure, for communication, for all sorts of different things, whatever it means for you. Um, and that's the ultimate thing about sex is it's a very personal thing. But society teaches us it's mainly for reproduction, to keep the bloodline going, to keep the human race around. And so all these um, things that point to how ridiculous that notion is, basically uh, society turns into horror stories. And so um, that's, why, that's why he talks about, you know, isn't that kind of weird? And the, the obsession with blood <laughs> in, in particular, um, in, in the way that, you know, women used to be, you know, uh, hidden away during their menstrual cycles because blood uh, and in the impurity and how ridiculous it was because it's a natural biological function of the human body. What the fuck is going on with you guys? But also the, the other main thing that's being taken the neck out of is stakes, as in staking a vampire through the heart. When they're on the ferry and, uh, you know, Regis gets, gets shot by an arrow and, you know, he, you know, he's not accustomed to that right now. He, you know, he's been hiding out in a graveyard for, you know, who knows how long. He, you know, he's separated from society. That hurts. And Melva gets all really very angry and goes all badass and knocks everybody out. And then Regis goes, you know, that wasn't very productive. If you had taken these poles, we could have gotten away faster. You know, because this is a fairy and it doesn't move on its own. And, the, and she's like, you're dead. I, and he went, do you really think I'd be harmed by any piece of wood? Um, it's just, it's Sapkowski laughing at the idea and ridiculousness of vampires. Because a lot of myths of vampires, and I've talked about this before, uh, when he, before in the spoiler section, during his introductory chapter, and then again with uh, with some other chapters as well as with Josh about how Regis's entire persona is here not only to have fun, have a good philosophical banter with Geralt, but also to uh, take the nick out of vampire tropes, but in a lot of different societies across the world some version of a vampire can be found whether it has that name or not there, there's some version of it and and the thing is is that a lot of our myths of vampires as we know in the modern day are so very insular to certain sections of the world it's ridiculous like the cross that the vampires are afraid of the cross as though they are a creature from hell and as though they are inherently Christian. I'm a Christian. While Christian is one of the dominant religions, it's not the only religion. So why would they be afraid of crosses? That makes no sense, especially if an idea of a vampire can be found in most cultures around the world. Uh, there's a great scene in the animated series on Netflix called Castlevania where um, uh, where the vampire hunter is talking to a wizard and, and he's talking about how, you know, this sword is specifically designed so that if the, 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 the user holds it in a particular way, it looks like a cross. So it will scare away vampires. And the, and the wizard, she goes, yeah, that's great and all, but, you know, when we go to India, like, they're not going to be afraid of that. They have no concept of that. They're not Christian. Um, and so, like, it's, you know, making fun of vampires and how insular, especially because of Bram Stoker's book, Dracula, and how that has sort of 
permeated throughout pop culture and has defined what vampires are, and of course Nosferatu, etc., that it's just kind of fun uh, to have the character who's the inverse of all your classic vampire tropes, and it's just going, no. Um, like, he even points out mathematically how stupid the idea of vampires as a virus is. Because statistically speaking, you know, if that was the case, inevitably, over the course of a couple you know, decades, maybe even a century, there would be no humans left. Because the vampires, who are immortal and can only die through specific circumstances, and if they merely bite you, infect you, and turn you into a vampire, then, well, inevitably, the immortal, short-lived, incredibly easy-to-kill, and easily infected humans would die out in favor of the nigh-invulnerable immortal beings who act as an infection. Um, and mathematically, it is completely impossible to think otherwise. And it's just so funny. Um, I love how Stokowski uses his stories to tell really deep, political, socially conscious, character-driven stories, but also, at the same time, here's an aside about the ridiculousness of this particular myth, this particular fantasy trope. I've always enjoyed that about him. He's very sarcastic in a way that, you know, it's very Polish. <laughs> you know, they meet up with Zoltan and they, uh, I, I love how Zoltan, you know, it just seemed to happen. You know, he picked up these stragglers and started helping them out. And, uh, you know, he's he's an altruist. Um, and, of course, that you know, the the idea when comparing that to his reveal about the chest that him and Percival were, uh, had in the previous chapters when they first met up with Geralt and then they buried was stolen goods that they had stolen from this guy. Um, and the idea ultimately is that evil exists within good and good exists within evil, the yin-yang. That one can do things for good reasons or bad reasons, one can do them for both. And that doesn't make you any less of a person or as black and white as this person good, this person bad. It simply is the way of life. You know, Zoltan stole these goods to, you know, feed his caravan as well as get the money to continue operating the caravan. Meanwhile, he also picked up refugees that he didn't have to. Does that make him good or bad? Um, and when they talk to the witch, the witch, in quotation marks, from the, the Horseshoe chapter, she had actual visions, which implies that there was something going on there, that the priest was on the right track, but blowing it way out of proportion was, of course, fucking crazy and fanatical. Um, but she, she talks about how the one who takes blood and the one who feeds blood will die slowly and slowly over time, and basically... We're seeing as our perception of vampires are thrown out the window and stomped on by Regis, our idea of the vampire is evolving, changing, and so the one who drinks blood is changing, you know, dying bit by bit, if it were, if you want a more poetic language. And then Geralt, his arc, which I'll get into during the Milva and Battle section, of he's been throughout this chapter, you know, throughout all the books, really, been struggling with, am I emotionless? Not necessarily. Of course, the entire idea of witches being emotionless is 
a misnomer, but it's the way he likes to present himself. Emotionless killing machine who gets money, kills monsters. And we're seeing that that has been breaking down over and over and over again to the point that Geralt pretty much hasn't been on a monster hut for ages. Uh, is he really a witcher anymore? All he's really concerned about is Ciri and Yen and getting them back. And now he's on this grand adventure that even Milva talked about how fucking ridiculous it is. Uh, you know, he is basically shredded, driven down little by little to the point that he is a new man, hence baptism of fire, that he has chosen a side. The side isn't, you know, the North or Nilfgaard, good, bad, uh, or even neutrality. He has chosen one side, and that side is Siri. Uh, and that side means he helps his friends, he helps his family, and his ultimate goal is to get Siri. Everyone else can be fucked. Um, and that is Geralt now. We have seen a man who, in the lesser evil, in most in particular, like when it was really hammered home, who wanted to remain neutral, and uh, but wanted to understand, tried to get involved, and because of his bumbling in that, made the situation far worse than it than it should have or could have been. We're now seeing a man who willingly gets involved, but not for the sake of prove or one point right or wrong, it's to save another. And that really comes to a head in the battle, which I'll talk about in a minute. So the Milva section, we find out that she is pregnant. Um, I've talked about this before um, in the spoiler sections and how that sort of um, reads into things. Like she, uh, Geralt directly points this out, but I pointed this out when she when she joined up with the Hansa, um, is that basically it's almost a maternal thing, that she's joined up at this party as a life for a life. She planned on not keeping this child. Uh, she knew it was going to become a problem, um, and she didn't know how to go about it, and um, so she went on this ridiculous quest to go save another person's child, a life for a life. And what I love about the Milva situation is the way Bukowski analyzes multiple aspects of this. You know, th this is abortion rights, and abortion rights are a very sticky topic. I am very much pro-choice. I believe it is the woman's right to choose what is done with her body and her, you know, offspring. Um, I believe that is the inalienable right of every woman on this earth. But there are other aspects in this that make that more complicated. And Sapkowski obviously is pretty much pro-choice. He's talked about this before, especially in the short stories. Uh, when Clancy talks about that it is a woman's right as well. That basically, the Nilfgaardians have the pro-choice mindset. You know, they take slaves, they're propagandists, they, they, they do horrible things, but they do have progressive ideas. And in that, you know, is that it's a woman's right to choose. The North, it depends on the area. Some of them uh, like the idea of it being the woman's choice. Others, it's a group responsibility, or it falls in the lines of the, the husband's or the man's choice. Uh, Dandelion is obviously pro-choice, saying that it is her right. Um, and But Geralt is conflicted. And what I love about this is this is Sapkowski looking at the pro-life idea 
and saying, this I don't agree with, but you can understand how someone got there. And I think that is very important for political and social, you know, um, commentary in fiction especially, but even in real life. There's, especially recently, because the world has become so divisive and the internet has made that worse and everything's kind of become an echo chamber, that basically, if someone disagrees with you, they are the devil incarnate. And if someone agrees with you, they are God incarnate. And there's no middle ground to be had here. Um, and I think that's ridiculous. Because I think that there are topics worth debating, topics worth talking about. And demonizing the other side, tribalism, um, is so ridiculous to me. And so, with here, Kahir, pro-choice. Dandelion, pro-choice, but understands that there are bigger, uh, you know, questions to be asked here. Because this isn't just a domestic life they're talking about. They're talking about life on the road. You know, if she, if she gets an abortion, she won't be able to continue with them. She will be miserable for days. Because the abortion in this time frame, you know, in this world, is not an easy, quick, and done thing. You will, uh, you will be suffering for at least several weeks as your body processes it. If, we can, if they continue to have the baby, then she's going to become weaker and weaker as, uh, as the, the, the baby continues to uh, require nourishment from her. And she'll be slower and, and it will cause problems. And it will just be a headache to deal with. So either way, they're fucked. So they either need to solve this and send the middle of it back, or something else. So Dandelion's conflict. Meanwhile, Geralt has never had a choice in his life in regards to a child. Never. He was infertile. He has been infertile since he became a witcher. Jennifer, same way, been, been infertile since she became, you know, a sorceress. So, at the end of the day, he is struggling with the fact that this is a choice. Because to him, you choose the child. I mean, everything he has done since he got Siri through the Law of Surprise, um, especially, you know, from, uh, from something more onwards, has been always in the service of Siri. And so now he's conflicted because he does believe it is a woman's right to choose. But he also understands that the pain that someone goes through when they don't have that choice. Um, and he envies the choice in a way because he didn't have it, nor did yet. And there's this beautiful moment when he goes and he talks to Milva. And he says, I understand. It's your choice. You know, I just want to say that I never had that choice, nor did nor did Jennifer, and that affected the way our lives went. Um, and and the, there's a moment where she's so conflicted, and she sort of breaks down in his arms, and she senses him trembling, and she goes, "Go, why are you trembling?" And he says, "Nothing. It's a memory." The big question is in that is there are two instances where this could be a memory. One, the most obvious, and the one that I think it is, Yen, how many, he talked about how many times he had to console her through all the different 
cures she tried to go to that didn't do anything and how she was searching for something that would never exist but she refused to give up hope and it would just destroy her mentally over and over and over again and how he didn't know what to do and so he just tried to console her and he was so miserable and she was so miserable because they didn't have this choice and then Essie the second one breaking down in his arms because she can't have love returned much like he can't have love returned in the form of a child because he can't have one both of these work so beautifully in that moment and you can really understand Geralt's mindset of just I don't know how to process this I firmly believe it is her choice but also I didn't have that choice nor did Yen and she needs to understand how important it is she has that choice so what I like is that ultimately she decides she's going to try for it. She's going to go for the child. Of course, during the battle, she ends up having a miscarriage. So it's a tragedy either way. But I like how Sapkowski doesn't patronize the audience. Like, as I said, I'm purely pro-choice. And especially in the modern world we live in right now, where Roe v. Wade in America has been overturned, I think that is abhorrent. And I think we're going backwards as a society, and that really upsets me. I think it's also worth noting that not everyone who's on the opposite side is, is an asshole. That everybody has a point of view built from their experiences, their life, and... We should understand and acknowledge that it is valid. Geralt is pro-choice, but he also believes that if you're given the chance, maybe you should go for it, because he didn't have that. And I understand that implicitly, um, and I think that is a conversation worth having. It's a conversation that's very interesting. As I've pointed out multiple times, Poland does not have legal abortions. It has outlawed abortions for many years. Uh, it did have legal abortions uh, quite a while ago, uh, but then it had severe restrictions on it and then eventually completely outlawed it. So this is Sierkowski trying, in his own way, through his own fictional universe, to wrestle with this idea of what is right, what is wrong. Choice, yes, but what for people who never had the choice? And I think that is an important delineation and an important discussion to have. Um, and I think it's worthy of its own, you know, book or something. You know, this was only a minor section of this chapter. Very impactful one, but very minor in the large scheme of things. And will affect Melva's uh, character arc as she goes forward. But I think that that discussion is definitely worth having. As I said, pro-choice. I'm 100% pro-choice. But I do understand where girl is coming from. And I think demonizing another side simply because they disagree with you is harmful to society. Now to the famous Battle of the Bridge on the Yoruga. The thing about the Battle of the Bridge is that it's it's an iconic moment of the series. And I think that kind of affects the way people view it. It's, it's a good moment. Uh, there's some really great dramatic irony in a lot of places. The Nilfgaardian, Kahir, who has... Uh, insisted he's not enough guardian because he's from Vicovero, not the capital, still, you know, raises arms against his own brethren, leading troops 
from the north against him, his own side, and at one point has, you know, interaction with an officer he knew. And Geralt, the man who refused to choose, refused to take sides, joins the north to fight because he needs to cross the river to get Milva help because of her miscarriage. And I think that is affected the way we look at it. The Thronebreaker, um, the Witcher Tales Thronebreaker, is a game put out by CD Projekt Red, um, and it's the uh, you know it most a lot of people surprisingly have not played it because it's not part of the, the it doesn't have Witcher One, Witcher Two, Witcher Three, or whatever in the DLCs. It, you know, it's a separate thing. It plays differently, but it takes place during the section. It follows Queen Meave and her guerrilla army of Lyrian and Rivian soldiers as they traverse and try and, you know, get through this entire situation. I quite like it. Um, I think it's one of the better games that they made. I had a lot of problems, as I've mentioned before, with continuity and character and storylines of the, the, the games. I think they really, at times, nail it, and other times completely drop the ball and at times harm the source material because of what they do. And because of the main thing people know outside of the Netflix show, that colors people's perspective. One of the things Thronebreaker did that really annoyed me was that the Battle of the Bridge was the turning point. It was the big win that uh, led to the turning of the tide of, of, of the war. Well, that's not how it happened. The historians, it's even explicitly said in this, historians will never remember this battle. Who would care? It's a battle over a fucking small bridge in the middle of nowhere near Yizgith Forest. Ooh, who cares? That's the point. It was a completely superfluous, useless battle between Nilfgaardians and a guerrilla force of uh, other countries um, who Nilfgaard has occupied and randomly the Hansa ha has to get involved in order to save the life of Milva and hopefully cross the river and get close to the Siri. That's the thing about it. It's a superfluous, inconsequential battle. It means nothing. But it means everything to the people who are involved. And I think we blow down the proportion because of the significance of of its part in Geralt's arc, uh, where the story is going, and so we kind of make it this big feel deal in expanded universe material when it never was. The storyteller explicitly says historians would never remember this battle. That really bothers me, but, you know, that's neither here nor there. It's a, it's a nice moment. And there's a lot of, like, Lord of the Rings jokes in here. Like, there'll be a couple more, and I mentioned about the O... Uh, in previous chapters, but also, like, their decision to go to Yizgith and the, the debate over that of how dangerous it will be and having one person who's been there uh, and knows how uh, potentially dangerous it, it's going to be um, is very reminiscent of the Fellowship's decision to go to the Mines of Moria. Um, s some lines are directly taken from that directly. And then, of course, Geralt getting bonked on the head by a mace and uh, not seeing the rest of the battle is pretty much exactly the same as good old Bilbo Baggins getting knocked in the head uh, and falling unconscious and not seeing the rest of the Battle of the Five Armies and then waking up in its aftermath. It's exactly that. And I think that's very, very cute. The knighting scene, I think, is one of the most powerful scenes in the entire series. Because at this point, Geralt has become the man we know him to be. In the Battle of the Bridge, there's a bit where Kahir says, you want me to fight my own, Geralt? You know, you want me to take up arms against these people? Uh, my own? Geralt 
puts it bluntly, I couldn't give a shit about this war. This is about Milva. You can either side with your people or stay with us, make a choice, and do it fast. That right there is symbolic of how Geralt has changed. He went from never being able to make a choice, being scared to, by only choosing neutrality uh, and fucking things up, to formally unequivocally taking a side. The side, of course, is not a side anybody wants him to choose, it's the side of his friends and his family. And so when he is knighted, the name he took, which was, you know, his second name, because his first name was so ridiculous that even Vesemir vetoed it, was, you know, Geralt of Rivia. But the of Rivia was just a marketing term. You know, he's not from Rivia. He doesn't have the accent. Uh, you know, well, he has the accent, but it's it's a false accent. Um, you know, it, it, he trained his voice to do that, but also, like, he was never knighted, so he's Geralt of nowhere. And so when he does this, and much like Zoltan, it just seemed to happen, Meave knights him. And the way it's done is so beautiful, like, all the conflicting stuff, you got her missing teeth, so she's got a lisp, Geralt of Wifia. Gout being, you know, knocked out and not, not exactly sure how it happened and how it just seemed to happen and, and that, you know, his smile at the end. It's just so comedic but also heartwarming. It's probably the most happy ending, quote-unquote, to quote the kid from uh, uh, the beginning of the chapter that we could get in this of Gout has become Gout of Rivia. He is no longer Gout of Nowhere. He is no longer just the Witcher. He made a choice. Isn't one that anybody wants him to make. Outside of, of course, the people that love him. But it is a choice nonetheless. He's no longer neutral. And he did it for a friend. He took the bridge. Not for political gain. Not to help the soldiers. Not to defeat the North Guardians. Not as payback. He took it. So that they could get across the river and get Milva the medical attention she needed. It just seemed to happen. And so, Geralt comes, Geralt of Rivia, and he can't help but smiling. Because at last, that name he took, the name that has been despised, you know, because he's a mutant, he's an other, he's a witcher, and as he's hidden from himself, motionless killing machine, I'm nothing more, I, I can't process love, I can't process these these all these feelings, these ideas, so he hides behind this comfort blanket. At last, his real self has come out, and it has been acknowledged. And so there was a smile, a smile he couldn't resist. Lovely, heartwarming ending. Wonderful chapter, too. Like, just so many things going on, and it's just beautiful stuff um this is Geralt's book as I said Tower of Swallows or Tower of the Swallows depending on your translation I actually kind of prefer calling it Tower of Swallows because I think it rings better uh like I know it's supposed to be the Tower of the Goal and Tower of the Swallow but I think Tower of Goals and Tower of Swallows just sounds better on my tongue anyway but you know semantics it's a translation error so I, I don't know the original Polish I don't know how it's supposed to have been translated but you know a series book you know, we're we're gonna get you know stuff with the the whole trio, of course, but um, inevitably, I think it is very much where Siri is going. Siri is gonna go on her arc, 
where she'll become the woman we know at the end of the saga, much like Geralt has done in this book. Um, and it'll definitely be interesting to cover that. It's totally very different from Baptism of Fire. Baptism of Fire is the Lord of the Rings style adventure across a continent that has been ravaged by war. Uh, Tower of Swallows is a much more introspective, dare I say darker, character study. Both of them are character studies, but they are different in tones. So part of the larger story, and really, really good. Um, that one, of course, has more chapters, so uh, I don't know which ones Josh will be appearing on yet, but I'll, I'll let you know then. I only have one small thing I want to put in a spoiler section, um, and that is, big spoilers here, Nimue. Nimue is seen as a child at the storyteller, uh, and she's interested in Yennefer. Of course, she goes on the study of Eratusa, and on her trek to Eratusa, she meets one Geralt of Rivia, or at least we assume so. It is a, a certain white-haired witcher who doesn't go by any particular name, but he certainly talks and acts much like our good old Geralt, and we'll get into that in Season of Storms. But the most important thing is that her interaction with Geralt in the woods, as well as being fascinated by Yennefer's journey, as well as uh, going to Eratus and studying the legend of the Witcher and the Witcheress, led her to becoming obsessed with the myth, the legend that is Ciri. And that will play a massive part in the ongoing stuff of Lady of the Light. You know, that's the only major in spoiler section. Obviously, like I talked about, it's a kind of weird the way it's done, but it, if you know it, it works much better. Um, I wonder how it, it, how much of it is translation problems, but that's regardless of the point. Um, happy to have returned from my hiatus, finally finished Baptism of Fire and getting onto the Tower of Swallows. Uh, lovely, lovely chapter. Um, and... Uh, I, I could end out this uh, this deal by being very cheesy and saying I, I now pronounce you Kyle's internal monologues, uh, you know, audience or whatever, but I shall spare you that dis uh, despite me just saying it as a joke. Uh, so thank you for joining me and see you next time. Bye. Bye.